Welcome back, everybody. I'm Martina Drago, and this is Talking Films, the podcast which investigates revolutionary films. Each week we'll be looking at one film that is considered revolutionary for either its technical developments or its social impact. In our first episode, we explore Citizen Kane's innovative techniques. And in case you missed it, you can find this episode on Anchor, Spotify or our webpage. Today, in this second stage of our journey through cinema, we're going to shift our focus from technical innovation to social impact. The film we are going to explore has had a consistent influence on society, especially on young generations. Today, we're going to investigate the film which legitimized James Dean as one of the best actors of his generation, Rebel Without a Cause. Hi. I've seen you before. Well, stop the world. You don't have to be unfriendly. Well, now that's true. But life is crushing in on me. Life can be beautiful. <laughs> in this episode, we will be joined again by Frank Krodnick, lecturer at the University of Sussex, where he teaches American cinema, a module that has always reserved a very, very special place for Rebel Without a Cause. Rebel Without a Cause tells the story of a particularly rebellious teenage boy, Jim Stark, and how he falls in love with a girl and struggles to get along with his family and other teenagers. So if we watch this film with superficiality, what we can get from it, especially if, uh, like me, you, you didn't grow up when this movie was made in the 50s, what we can get is nothing more than the idea that this film is just another teen movie. I mean, after all, the topics The Rebel Without a Cause discussed are the same that are usually confronted in a teen movie. So what makes this film different? What makes it revolutionary? Yeah, Rebel Without a Cause um, nowadays is often seen as the first uh, teen film. You know, uh, there had been films about teenagers previously, uh, but they were often from the adult's perspective. There were some f- low-budget films in the in the 40s. For example, there's a film called Janie, made in 1944, which is about Bobby Soxer and her love life and so on. But this was the first film to try and chart, um, you know, teenage subcultures and also to say something about the disaffection that um, American youth felt about the world, the way the world was going after World War II. The film was directed by Nicholas Ray, um, who was a very distinctive um, cinematic stylist, and the film is remarkable, I think, for its use of uh, its handling of the widescreen frame. But the film's also became a kind of course, a controversial movie in the 1950s because of what it was saying about teenagers and the way they just did not fit within American culture at the time. So the, the title, Rebel Without a Cause, in itself has been much cited subsequently. And there's something quite resonant about the, the feelings that that title sum, summons up, I think. What apparently could seem just another teen movie results in being the first film to explore the moral decay of American youth, aiming at depicting conflicts and differences between generations. To achieve this purpose, the film takes advantage of some aspects like miscommunication, masculinity, rebellion, adolescence, danger, family and sexuality, 
And today, we're going to explore these topics to truly understand the real purpose and meaning of Nicholas Ray's film. So, there is a lot to say and we better get started. Miscommunication is always a central topic when we talk of generational gaps. It doesn't matter what generations we're talking about, it's always present. In Rebel Without a Cause, communication barriers prevent the characters from understanding each other. And in the film, there's a strong division between the three protagonists and the adults that surround them. These three protagonists, who are Judy, Jim and Plato, all engage in acts of juvenile delinquency as a sort of consequence of the fact that they have been either ignored or misunderstood by these adults around them. Did anyone see your license plate? I don't know. I don't know. What about the other boys? Do you think they'll go to the police? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why should you be the only one involved? Well, far be it for me to tell you what to do. Oh, are you going to preach? Do we have to listen to a sermon now? Well, I'm only trying to tell him what you mean. Communication barriers in the film are also caused by some sort of dysfunctional formation of sex, gender and parenthood. For instance, Jim can't stand his father because he is passive and feminized. On the other hand, Judy's father can stand to acknowledge her femininity and the fact that, uh, you know, his daughter is actually becoming a woman. And finally, the relationship between Jim and Buzz is quite complicating because they, they can't be friends, because they must compete to be recognized as men. Yeah, because one of the um, the key, one of the key issues in the film, I think, is the way the way there is this generation gap and the lack of um, communication between between the parents and the children. Not just a lack of communication, but a lack of shared understanding of what society is, what the culture is, and how people should fit within that culture. The parents of uh, Jim, uh, the parents of the central character, Jim Stark, are very very conformist. They they just want to fit into this kind of like a suburban domestic ideal. Actually, one of the key things that's worth stressing about this film is that it's quite brave in the way that it doesn't try and identify juvenile delinquency as the product of working-class urban youth. It's actually focusing on these kind of middle-class suburban children and dealing with a much more kind of existential kind of hollowness within within their relationship to the culture. So the miscommunication, the lack of lack of kind of coherence between you know, the lack of coherent understanding between children and parents is the product of a much broader set um feeling of social disease, I think. You know, it's not just about parents not understanding their kids, kids not understanding their parents, but it's all about the way that the values of post war America are not something that that is unnecessarily very healthy. It's all about consumption. It's all about you know um, about the sense of like an artificial sense of belonging, an artificial sense of conforming. So the three children, the three teenagers that the film focuses on, find themselves dislocated from their families, but also from the promise of uh, a materialist culture after World War Two. Introducing the element of gender, masculinity is another central topic in the film, and this element is mainly presented in three ways. The first one is Jim's desire as a teenage boy to become a respectable man, even if he actually lacks a suitable role model for doing so. For example, Jim's father defers his authority to Jim's mother and lacks the necessary advice to impart to Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no, I'd better, better clean it up. 
before she sees it. Let her see it. What? Let her see it. Another important male figure to the protagonist is Ray, the police officer who helps him to, to defuse his temper at the beginning of the film in the first scene. However, the character of Ray becomes absent later in the film, when Jim needs him the most. As opposed to Jim's father's passive style of masculinity, there is Buzz with his gang. They are way too aggressive, inciting some sort of pointless violence that Jim morally opposes but can't avoid. And finally, Jim himself fails as a figure of paternal masculinity when he abandons Plato near the film's hands, which leads to Plato's death. No! Don't turn on the lights! Don't, you, it's too bright. Plato doesn't... Please. Turn out the lights! Jim! Jim! Yeah, I think masculinity is one of the key uh, issues of this film. And, you know, to use a much overused phrase, um, it's a film about masculinity in crisis to some degree. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons why this film has been so successful and so influential is because of the casting of James Dean in the central role. I mean, James Dean was one of the kind of major method actors of the uh, the 1950s. He, his whole kind of acting style was all about, you know, I don't know, male neurosis. His body is expressing this kind of lack of, lack of kind of, fitting in this discomfort is you know but the film in terms of its gender relations is actually i think very contradictory on the one hand it wants to present jim as a much more caring um a much more accommodating and caring um vision of masculinity because he, he basically adopts plato as almost like a kind of child he's very receptive to judy not just as not simply as a sexual or romantic partner but as someone he really cares about so he represents in some ways an alternative to a kind of much more stifled um you know masculinity embodied in fathers in the film either his father who wears an apron or judy's father who just can't deal with her transition from girlhood to womanhood but at the same time um, women tend to be blamed in this film for this crisis in masculinity. So although on the one hand they're saying quite progressive about this remodeled version of masculinity, you know, the sensitive, the tender and the caring figure of J the James Dean character, Jim Stark. On the other hand, you know, the wife, the mother figure is very much blamed for the emasculation of the uh, father, Jim's father. So there's something both progressive and conservative at one and the same time about how the film is trying to reimagine masculinity. It rejects some of the kind of deficiencies of the parents, but it can't really imagine a successful way beyond that. As the title of the film implies, Rebel Without a Cause is about the tendency of teenagers to rebel against their elders, and therefore rebellion results in being the central topic of the film. It's interesting to see how the film represents this element though. Rebel Without a Cause tends to shift the blame of what happens from the teenagers to their parents. For instance, in the opening scene when Judy, Jim and Plato are brought into the police station, Rather than dismiss them as belligerent, Ray, the police officer, treats their problems seriously and instead he lays the blame on the adult figures who have failed to provide guidance. Well, I guess we have to lock you up. Why? Don't leave me alone. No. I don't know why. Go on, don't give me that. Please lock me up. I'm going to hit somebody. I'm going to do something. I don't... Try the desk. 
Even the film's most alarming scenes of violence, like Bud's death, are rendered as complex events that could have been prevented with the proper adult intervention. What the film does here is a strong, direct and open critique of the wars of adults. With a similar purpose, Ray takes advantage of the element of danger and risk. In Rebel Without a Cause, our protagonists engage a lot in severe dangerous activities, which are used by the director to explain what stands behind them, what is the effective cause of those activities. Rebel Without a Cause illustrates how teenagers, without the proper guidance or authority, resort to dangerous behavior. And this happens because the force exerted by peer pressure outweighs the force exerted by the so-called authority figures surrounding the film's characters. Given their absence, the parental figures in the film become completely detached from the world of the kids, but ironically, race film shows how these dangerous activities only reinforce their need for guidance and attention. So these, these kids have, have got different sorts of problems that are affecting them and they respond in different ways. But the police, we get a very strange kind of benevolent view of the police. The police are able to kind of, uh, the, the kindly police officer Ray, maybe it's not coincidental that, you know, got the same, he's got the same name as Nicholas Ray's surname, but he's somebody who understands these kids and uh, sees that they are not the cause of the problem, but the parents very much are. So we see, for example, Jim's parents coming into the police station and immediately rowing with one another and uh, provoking Jim to this kind of cry of panic, effectively. So there is a sense in which the, the, police, the police station, the precinct house, is used as a forum for articulating the problems of the children and where the causes of those problems might actually come from, which is in the parental generation. Jim, where were you tonight? They called us at the club and I got the fright of my life. Where were you tonight, Jimbo? Everybody knows that adolescence is a very crucial period in life and that what happens in those years shapes what we will become in the future. Family is a central part of everyone's life but it becomes particularly relevant when you are a teenager. When you are in this sort of transitional part of your life, between childhood and adulthood, the relationship you have with your family, with your models, leaves a mark on you. And this mark can be either positive or negative, depending on the quality of those relationships. The film introduces all the protagonists as in desperate need of escaping their families. Jim Stark says his family is tearing him apart, and Judy wishes to flee the confines of her household. She and Jim use the words zoo and circus to describe the chaos that exists in their homes, which should be places of comfort and belonging. As a consequence, our three protagonists look for a replacement for their own families. Jim, Judy and Plato's time spent in an abandoned maison towards the end of the film represents a sort of attempt on their part to build a chosen family. Jim and Judy become a mock couple and plateau their mock child, with the abandoned maison becoming their mock house. In this way, the three can conceive the idea of a family in a utopian fantasy space. Well, what do you think of my castle? Well, now there, then, uh, I think we'll take it for the summer. Right this way. Oh, uh, uh, would you like to rent it? 
Or are you more in the mood to buy, dear? You decide, darling. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, there is in the film uh, great dissatisfaction with the established order and with established gender roles. Um, so, and, um, and, and the, so the teenagers are trying to imagine something different for themselves. And they do so. They, there's one lengthy sequence where they escape this old mansion and they act out alternative family relationships. But that becomes, what's interesting about that, I think, is although they want to reject what the parents can offer in terms of templates for behaviour and belonging and community and so on, they can't really imagine something beyond that, something different. So in the scenes in the old mansion, for example, Plato feels abandoned because um, and rejected because Jim and Judy are establishing a very close dyadic relationship you know they're becoming a couple and the, and plato can't really fit within that uh plato is also a fascinating character in this film because he's subsequently has been regarded as the first kind of gay teenager on film and there's certainly something and this was a knowing thing amongst the filmmakers they knew that plato was gay they couldn't because of censorship issues they could not explicitly depict him as gay but at the same time this is conveyed often in the way that the um the actor playing Plato Salmineo, who was incidentally also gay himself, the way that he looks at Jim through the film. So this becomes kind of a key subtext. And of course, that, that sense of the kind of the gay boy or the gay man doesn't fit within orthodox notions of 1950s American culture either. So the film is, and Plato's violence is, is in, to some degree explained uh, by his parental crisis you know he's basically been abandoned by his parents but also this sense of just not fitting in with what the society demands of somebody like him a young um sort of gay male another important relationship we all experienced when we were teenagers was the one with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even you know just the feeling of having a crush of someone for the first time Sexuality and the exploration of sexuality is another crucial topic in every teen movie. And in Rebel Without a Cause, the most evident sexual attraction is the one between Jim and Judy. This one is very classic. The bad boy who falls in love with a good girl whose parents forbid her to see him and they run away together and, you know, usual things. All the time I've been... I've been looking for someone to love me. And now I love somebody. And it's so easy. Why is it easy now? However, the film is groundbreaking because of another relationship, the one between Jim and Plato. We must not take this for granted, as Rebel Without a Cause is one of the earliest post-war films to push the boundaries of the highest code in terms of on-screen representations of male-male desire. The Hays Code was a um, system of uh, self-regulatory censorship. Uh, it wasn't imposed on Hollywood studios from without, but it was a way of the Hollywood studios agreeing certain kind of rules of conduct, rules of behavior, rule, rules of representation that would prevent films from being interfered with by external censorship, censorship agencies, either in the States or in, in, um, or in, the, in the metropolitan areas. So it's a way, a set of um, represent, representational codes by which the Hollywood studios tried to guarantee that all films could pass and be suitable for all audiences. Now, after World War II, especially through the 1950s, there were a succession of films which erode the Hays Code. I mean, and one of the key motivations for that is that the mass audience is basically deserting cinema 
from about 1948 onwards. So there's, you know, so a lot of filmmakers like Nicholas Ray, like uh, Otto Preminger, like Billy Wilder, uh, see the Hays Code as outmoded and no longer suitable to a new kind of context in which cinema finds itself. So there's lots of films that deal in a rather veiled way with homosexuality, with drug taking, with forms of sexual behavior that don't fit the, uh, the more narrow dictates of American culture or those inscribed in the Hays Code. So, you know, this continues to be eroded, the Hays Code, until the late 1960s when it's replaced by a more liberal rating system. Rebel Without a Cause is a film that was successful in delivering what being a teenager means in a very revolutionary way. It didn't fall into the trap of rhetoric, limiting itself to tell a story of rebellion and love. It went far beyond that. Ray investigated what stands behind teenagers' problems and struggles. It put under the spotlight teenagers' mental health as a result of a toxic environment, a toxic family, and a toxic relationship. Ray tried to push the boundaries of homosexual representation, reflecting the same rebellion his characters have in the film. He took the courage to dare and to challenge society's rule. He highlighted teenagers' feeling of not being able to fit into pre-organized social groups, illustrating the rigid and restricted society in which the film was made, but also the society in which we still live today. Because even if this film was made in 1955, it still reflects modern issues related to adolescence. On one hand, the powerful way in which the film addresses crucial topics that everyone experiences in their life allowed Rebel Without a Cause to influence almost every generation since its release. On the other hand, its influential power is connected to its actuality. And maybe we should be worried about it, because it means that nothing has changed. Society is still a rigid conglomerate of groups. We are still asked to fit in those groups, otherwise we are considered outsiders. And parents are still trying to understand what stands behind their son's and daughter's rebellion. This is all for today, but we will be back soon with our third revolutionary film. Thanks to Frank Krutnik and to you all for joining me today. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and have a look at our webpage. I'm Martina Drago and this was Talking Films, the podcast which investigates revolutionary films.